0: Hello, and welcome to the Emotion Lab. We're taking a deep dive into what makes the combination of immersive technologies and emotion AI so exciting. This is through a combination of interviews with experts in academia, healthcare, and technology. And I'm your host, Dr. Charles Nduka. So today we're joined by Professor Stephen Fairclough, Professor of Physiological Computing at Liverpool John Moores University.
1: Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Charles. Good morning. Can you tell us a bit about uh, yourself, first of all? So, yes, Charles, I have a background in psychophysiology, which for people who don't know what that is, is taking physiological measures and using them to infer things about the psychological state of the person. I also have a background in neurophysiological measures, which is the same thing, but measuring the brain this time, using things like EEG, which measures electrical activity of the brain, and FNIRs, which measures the... um, uh, blood oxygenation in different parts of the cortex. So I've got a background in using those methodologies. What perhaps makes me a little bit unusual is that I learned to do those things whilst, whilst doing research on human factor psychology and human-computer interaction. So I very much learned to, to use those methods in the context of real-world tasks and technology-based interactions.
0: That's fascinating. And tell me something about your current work just now.
1: Okay. Well, we're involved in a number of different things at the moment. Um, So the first thing I probably want to mention is that I've been doing some work with VR recently, uh, and we're particularly interested in looking at how we would induce emotional states in VR and uh, measure those emotional states uh, using a measure called facial electromyography, which is measuring the the muscle activity of the face. And um, what I'm particularly interested in in that work is using the, the room scale VR, which is where you have people located in a certain special place. And that's very interesting to us as psychologists, because often people are sitting and they're kind of uh, in a stationary position. So getting people in a position where the whole body is involved in the interaction is a very uh, interesting angle to take on that. So we're doing the VR and sort of emotional based work. We also have a project that's been going on for some time now in different forms, uh, but I've been interested in creating what we call closed loop neuro adaptive technology systems. So these are systems that take measures from the brain and then they input those measures into computer systems or compu- uh, and then the computer system adapts based on the brain activity. So in the past, for example, we've created a, a computer game, a version of the game Tetris, that ran on EEG. So basically, if the EEG said that you were bored, then the Tetris game got harder, and if the EEG said that you were stressed or overloaded, then the Tetris game got easier. So we've been working with a, a local SMU game developers uh, to to advance that using FNERS as a brain signal. And we're doing that, really, to create a game that distracts people from pain. So the idea is that the brain signals push people into a state of high engagement, high attention, and that is used to distract uh, a patient from a a painful stimulus, uh, hopefully in a clinic, but we've not got to that stage yet. So we've been doing that uh, with the ethnos. And the other thing I should mention, which is another ethnos based project, is that I've been working with my colleagues in maritime engineering. Now at my university, we have uh, a simulator of a ship's bridge and uh, people go in there and they get trained on how to follow procedures and how to, uh, how to navigate a ship. And so we've been interested in using FNERS in that context to see what happens when people have a decision to make to avoid colliding with another ship, for example, and whether the FNERS can tell us something about the role of experience. So we've been contrasting experienced people with inexperienced people and and looking at uh, that kind of task, which is more realistic but also quite challenging because, to be honest, not an awful lot happens. So it's, there's not that many stimuli for us to measure, so that presents... A different sort of challenge.
0: That's fascinating. That's that's super super fascinating. And I guess, so looking at your your past publications, you've done a lot of work outside of the laboratory. I think probably in in some yeah um, quite tricky situations that would ordinarily be difficult to to study things such as driver behaviour, driving yes. while drunk, etc. And I can see that there is a there's like a logical extension between doing the work in the field, but now taking it into VR because it allows you to simulate
1: those different scenarios. Yeah. The first time I used EEG, which was a long time ago now when the EEG apparatus was nowhere near as good as it is now, was um, on a disused airfield in a car with a drunk person. So it was really quite challenging to sort of even get half decent signals out of the technology at that time. So as far as I'm concerned, things are kind of getting easier in a way because the, 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 the sensors and the monitoring technology is moving on so well.
0: The work you mentioned about pain is, is super interesting to me as, as a clinician because, yeah. um, you know, clearly we recognize there's a huge opiate crisis going on, uh, you know people dying in their droves, especially in America. Yeah. And, and doctors trying to find ways of avoiding the need for using opiates because for, for vulnerable people, all it takes is, is one or two doses uh, for a person to potentially become uh, dependent. Yeah. And and so so VR is particularly fascinating for me. And there's really good strong evidence on its benefits there. And yeah. I guess one one of the one of the issues has been traditionally that the the distraction that that people are um, stimulated with Tend to have been uh, non adaptive. So you, you could potentially be having high levels of distraction when it wasn't actually needed. And so the idea of, of using a closed loop feedback system, as you're working on, sounds really, really interesting. In fact, we just, I just published a paper earlier on, uh, within well, the last year, on using f- facial EMG as an objective tool to assess pain response because yeah. obviously facial expressions evolved to communicate distress and pain from, from a baby to, to the carers. So that, mm-hmm. that's super interesting
1: yeah um well that work like I say has been going on a while because from the technical point of view um, well the the purpose of doing it is that what engages people and uh, uh, depends on on the level of skill with a game and so on so you have to personalize the level of in our case we're looking at the level of demand that people are that the game exerts on people and so we're trying to use the brain signals in effect to to Gauge that and to personalize that because it's different for everybody. So this, this is this something called dynamic difficulty adjustment. Now, going back to the VR stuff, the VR stuff is interesting with pain, and you see we see some evidence that it works as a distractor. But we published a paper earlier this year in International Journal of Human Computer Studies where we had people play games and we had people play games with different sorts of screen sizes and different sorts of audio. And we also adjusted the level of game demand. We found throughout all those experiments, which was like five or six different experiments, game demand was the thing that drove the, the pain distraction response, not whether you were doing it in VR or whether you're doing it on widescreen or, or whatever. So I do think it's getting people to cognitively engage with something where the distraction effect comes from and. And we've kind of been looking at it kind of in the context of pediatric medicine, I think really, because uh, we, we're playing with games so much. Um, but I do think the benefits are there. And I do think, as you say, it's something that basically a pain patient of any age could use in principle. The challenge, of course, is keeping it fresh and keeping people engaged with it over a longer period of time. But that's, a, I guess, a longer term challenge of that work. Yes,
0: absolutely. But I mean, I guess... Um yeah, especially with children because of the 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 importance of ensuring they have a good yeah. experience because yeah, experience yeah. In, in hospital can cause problems much later on in, in life um I, yeah i can see the, the power of that and, and the, the the thing you mentioned just now the dynamic difficulty adjustment that, that sounds really interesting so tell me a bit a bit more about that
1: well in people who do research into games they, they kind of figured out that if you want someone to be motivated and engaged with a game it's partly about an interaction between the level of game demand and the skills of the person. Um, so if you have the game too easy, then no one's going to really engage with that. You don't get any relief from pain. If the game is too difficult, then you have the similar sort of thing. People give up, they don't engage with the game, and you don't get a, a pain response. But if you can find a f- kind of find this sweet spot for each person where they're at the kind of limits of their performance, um then you really get this very strong engagement. You get this very strong distraction effect. But that the band of that particular uh, that level, you know, can be quite thin. Can be quite difficult to tune it to that. So dynamic difficulty adjustment is a way of getting the game to adjust in real time. So it pushes people in that area. Now, in the work that we've done more recently, we've been using racing game, a particular racing game made in Unity, and we're taking the data from the uh from from the cortex using fness and using machine learning really to kind of to train the system to recognize the difference between for what this, this person is an easy game versus a hard game versus an impossible game but we've also incorporated some measures from the game itself so how many times you you know you you crash into another car for example um so it is possible to make dynamic difficulty adjustment without the uh, neurophysiology you know you can do it based on games metrics if you've got a if you've got um, a a fast enough signal if you've got enough data coming back you know which for driving games is great because obviously people are steering all the time Then you've got a continuous measure of performance so
0: so tell me a bit more about the work you're doing in vr particularly and your use of sensors within vr because i can imagine that um some of the traditional ways of studying emotional responses are not open mm. to you because the face is partly obscured and and i guess navigating around a headset with sensors can be difficult
1: well in the vr work um the the, the challenge for us because we're using room scale vr is obviously having an ambulatory psychophysiology setup so there's a lot of these different pieces of kit that people can wear while they while they walk around the room uh and that you can get signals from using a using either a, a you know, using different sorts of wireless sort of connections. Um, and and that's great in a way, because obviously if you've got someone wearing a headset in VR and it's an untethered headset, uh, then you'd want your uh, psychophysiological methods to be untethered also. The challenges come in two different forms. The one that you've already mentioned is that obviously people are wearing a headset and for as you, as, as you probably know, when people are looking at emotional responses in, in psychophysiology, facial electromyography, particularly the activity of the corrugator muscle and the zygomaticus, have been used a lot to look at the valence dimension of emotion. And um, and that can be a challenge because, uh, because of the way the headset fits around the brow, which can cause some problems for trying to actually get corrugator signals out of that area and uh and similarly i mean the zygomaticus is easier to get to but there are some issues there because it normally connects around the cheek sort of area as well and the other thing i think about that is that if you have the headset on very very, some of the headsets fit very very tight from the front of the head to the back of the head And so you can almost make it difficult. You can almost constrain the muscles in a way by having pressure on them exerted by the headset. So the challenge is that you've got to sort of work around. We've not tried to do this yet, but I know that if you're trying to take EEG or FNOS signals when you're um, using a VR headset, then that can be really challenging because then you've actually got probes on the scalp that can be interfered with. Uh, But there are ways around it. There are different... You you basically have to fit your montage very carefully around the design of the VR headset. Um, And then the other challenge is, if you're looking at things like um, heart rate and and so on, is the effect of, in our case, when people are walking around the room, is the effect of movement, is the effect of movement on the autonomic nervous system, which is going to influence breathing rate, heart rate, uh, will have an influence on even things like skin conductance and if you're interested in body temperature and all those sorts of things. So factoring in movement can be a challenge as well and then you've got the the you know the traditional problem in psychophysiology like is that there's a lot of wires and um, obviously if these wires are swinging around when people are moving uh, then you can have artifacts on your on your record that you probably don't want and and so you know the, the, there are various challenges in terms of integrating these measures as they stand with the VR technology as it exists today And what have you done to to get around those challenges? Well, um, basically, it took a, in terms of the swinging wires problem, Uh, it took a lot of piloting and a lot of medical tape in effect that we had to basically make sure that the person could move, but the wires are kind of strapped strategic, the wires are taped basically strategically to different parts of the body. So if they turn their body to the left or to the right, or if they're moving forwards or backwards, then we don't have any, we don't have any swinging wires whilst at the same time, not constraining the movement of the participant. So that was relatively easy. The placement of the um, of the electrodes or the fEMG electrodes, we had to kind of you know you're kind of looking at a uh, trying to get sponge inlays for the for the headsets that allow you to uh, if you wanted to slip an electrode underneath, then you can actually do that. Uh, but if you make these foam inlays too thick, then you can kind of let too much light into the headset, which spoils the experience. So we've had to do, we've had to play around with that side and being, and also being quite careful you're always careful about where you put electrodes on the face, but being even more careful and being a little bit strategic about where we place them. And obviously, as we know, because we have uh, the system from EmTech, is that our other option that we've been using is using built-in sensors, The sensors that are built into the headset, uh, which allow us to take the FEMG activity, you know, much more conveniently than we could do with, uh, with other sorts of systems. And then the other sort of... Uh, the other thing to think about if again we've never tried it but i've seen other people have used it if we were using eeg or or uh, FNERS or whatever is um, you could kind of i know of one lab where they've made these little i guess you call them little u-shaped pieces of plastic and they go under the headset so they go under the the, the head the under the headset and under the um, the cap and what they do is kind of protect the electrode. They like make a little bridge over the electrode to stop any of the straps from the VR headset pressing down on it. Because that that is a real challenge. Because these VR the VR headsets do have straps that go like uh, longitudinally along the skull. And if people when people move their heads to the left and right, then um, you know, you can get interference. And anything that's going to push on an optode in the case of EFNOS or an electrode in case of EEG is going to get you're going to get noise on the signal there. So there's tricks really of getting around it, but that is, um, you know, that that stuff is people are learning and sharing this expertise as we're kind of going along.
0: Absolutely, I, mean, I, I can imagine it's quite difficult to to also synchronize all these signals together and to ensure that they're, they're clean and and properly annotated.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a really big issue in, uh, in well in all psychophysiology really it depends what sort of analysis you're doing now in the work that we do we do use an event-based analysis approach so we're interested in what happens when a particular thing happens in maybe a window of a second and a half so we are synchronizing really through a through uh software that's been written especially to do this we are synchronizing signals from the movement of the person from the sensors that are actually the, the the hand sensors that, that people were, and the, and the head sensor for the VR, synchronizing those signals with our psychophysiological signals so that we can kind of pull everything together. And it becomes really, really important that you've got all the measures on the same clock. Now, other people use a, There's an approach called ERPs, ev- evoke cortical potentials, which is an EEG method, where you need millisecond accuracy to do that so then the synchronization issue becomes really important and there's a piece of open source software called lab streaming layer that a lot of people in the mobile brain body imaging uh community are using and that's the purpose of of lab streaming layer is to kind of get different devices together on the same timeline and synchronize across them that's one of the things it does
0: yeah, we're, we're using that, uh, at MTech uh, as, as one of the ways that we integrate with other, other software platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Ch- changing text slightly. So we're talking a bit about measuring physiological signals. Um, I remember you wrote a, an article. I think it was published in, in Nature mm. uh, about the, um, I think it was entitled to something like uh, physiological data should remain confidential. Yes. Um, obviously VR is, is becoming, um, uh, popular, but there are companies, obviously Facebook, Oculus, uh, have one of the leading devices out there. Do you have any concerns about the use of, of such devices uh, for collecting what will be increasingly sensitive data, especially when we include things like eye tracking?
1: Yeah, I have. Yeah, I think it's really dangerous to be honest. And I think I think the problem is for me um, is looking at the track record of some of the companies involved in terms of their. Uh, I think Facebook in the past have shown quite a cavalier attitude towards uh, things like data security and so on. Um, the issue with, psycho- with with physiological data, the, and the that original article that you mentioned was prompted by Microsoft's um, Xbox that had a Kinect camera that you couldn't switch off. And the Kinect camera could basically detect your heart rate and emotional expression. And basically people literally had to tape over the top of it in order to stop it working. Uh, so th- what this is about really for consumers is about control over their own data. And um, and we seem to have a model these days, in a commercial model, where companies provide a service, whether it's an app or, or whatever it is, and they're entitled for free to access your data while you're using that app. And I think that model probably has to change uh, because, as we know, uh, data is a valuable commodity like any other commodity that's used in a a kind of a capitalist economy. And, And, you know, people are giving it away for free at the moment. And I think we need to, if people are going to, if we're going to get to the level of, say, a VR system that is tracking where you are looking, and, you know, that may be taking signals from the from facial electromyography or heart rate signals or whatever. There's, you know, you can do quite a bit of stuff with that data. Um, the crude stuff that you can do really is that, um, is that you could just, if you had a physiological stream from a person, and there's plenty of devices out there where people have access to, where the companies have access to this data. Um then, you know, you could, you could detect things like, uh, say, someone, if someone's got a heart arrhythmia or not, you would be able to pick that up if you've got enough uh, heart rate data from a person. You wouldn't need very much, to be honest, to be able to spot it. And then that has financial implications for that person, say, for example, if they're in the States where they suddenly find they've got to pay more for medical insurance and so on. Um, so there are financial implications for people. Now, the other thing is, as we've just been talking about, what we do in our research is uh, if we want to interpret emotions from people, emotional responses, it's all about context. And so what we do, is we create these VR environments and we track movement and we know the layout of the environment and we know where the movement is occurring in the environment. And then we can synchronize all these emotional signals to that particular event or location or activity. And as the capacity to monitor becomes more prevalent in, in VR technology in commercial space, then those companies will be able to do the same. Uh, and so, it's not just about tracking what attracts, you know, tracking, say, doing eye tracking in order to personalize advertisements, which is, I'm sure, something like Google and Facebook will probably be interested in. Um, it kind of goes, it, it can go deeper to that, deeper than that. You can kind of almost start looking at profiling people. So the work that was done originally that kind of sparked all the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, was taking likes data from Facebook and using that data in order to profile the individuals. So they find they could very successfully profile uh, their sexuality, their political allegiance, and to some extent even match it up to personality traits. Now we've been doing work as researchers. We're not Doing this, you know, in order to uh, create a new commercial market, but we've been doing work of researchers where we we're finding some evidence that you can basically take someone's data in a VR environment and use it to assess, use it to take some measure of their personality. So we've found, for example, that people who score high and low on the neurotic scale behave differently in the VR environments that we're working with. So you can. So my basic argument is is that. If people are happy to give the data to the companies to do that, then they should be paid for it, or there should be an understanding, or there should be informed consent. But at the moment, we don't really have anything. We don't have any transparency around people's data rights. We don't have any transparency around data privacy. And more importantly, we don't have any understanding of what the data can be used for after it's been collected by the company and who it can be shared with. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's funny as a clinician.
0: Uh, obviously, I, I take consent from patients to do surgeries, and you know you have to go through it thing very very carefully. But then you know when you sign up to any of these services, you have this you know multi-page uh, terms and conditions, and you just literally you've got no choice. You just have to say yes. yes to everything, and it includes you know I give you. you know, rights in perpetuity to access everything I, I do. And, and obviously some of these devices now also include inside-out cameras as well, yeah, which are obviously yeah. having to scan your room space in order to, to give you room scale uh, uh, VR. So yeah, it, it, is, it yeah. is quite quite challenging. And I think yeah. you're totally right. I think that this has to be properly permission-based and with the default being ownership by the individual rather than by, by the company and for people to opt to, to, in.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have creative commons and stuff like that for other things. And I don't, I think your data is, is your own. And I know, I think I read somewhere that I think Google have just bought Fitbit. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So people are getting worried about that. I think unfortunately well, for those particular companies, there is, you know, there's a lot of suspicion around what they're actually doing with the data and what it's being used for. And I do think in both cases, both companies are trying to build AIs and that's what it's used for. Yes really, but it's, um, but you know, if you're, you're helping to, you know, you're basically making a contribution to that, you should be paid for it. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's always amazed me how willing patients are to participate in research when they feel that there is, um, some reciprocity so you know, they they've been yes. beneficiaries themselves of past people's involved in research yes. and so they themselves will will often put themselves through a lot of inconvenience to to help with research but i think the asymmetry between uh benefits to to the platform owners and the and the users that that causes most of the issues
1: yeah but then but then on the other hand you know uh, you're reading like what's going on today with covid and and stuff like that is obviously having the kind of centralized data that we have in the nhs has is- been very valuable exactly exactly i think is, is some, in some ways as well and, and you know in terms of you know dealing with a pandemic and getting data analysis done very quickly to try and identify risks and vulnerabilities and stuff like mm-hmm. that so but 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 i think that's in all our interests that's different but you know people aren't i guess people might make money off that in the long term but that's uh you know it's something that's in the national interest almost so. yes Yes. Speaking
0: of COVID, so how, how has that affected your research? The, the social distancing and uh, the need to have extra measures for infection control.
1: To be honest, we're still coming to terms with it. Uh, we, you know, when the uh, lockdown began, probably like yourself, we were in the middle of data collection, and uh, and so at least one experiment was shut down halfway through the data run. Uh, And, you know, the the university, that particular building still remains closed. Uh, So, you know, the university are only just in the last four weeks or so starting to reopen different buildings. So for us, it's a big deal because um, a lot of the data analysis, a lot of data capture that we do, uh, takes place in in specialised spaces, so whether that's a, a you know the maritime simulator, for example, or for the last study that we did, we were using a quite an enormous in um, enormous space uh, that you couldn't replicate anywhere else. So that's a problem. Um, we're about to start looking again. Obviously, we. we Every, all the data collection that we do goes through the Institutional Ethics Committee, and all our protocols are now gonna to have to be uh, revised in, in, in order, in, in, on the basis of COVID. So I've been keeping an eye on what other people are doing, and, and especially for the VR, the VR headsets are a particular problem, I think. I can see all the sensors that we use, I can see ways of cleaning those, and, uh, and being fairly confident that they're clean but because of the shape of a VR headset inside, it becomes more problematic. And I saw someone, some debate between VR researchers on Twitter and one very well-known researcher said, listen, if one person catches COVID after taking part in an experiment in one of our labs, then we're all sunk basically. So we have to be really, really careful. Um, so we're still coming to terms with what we're going to do with the VR headsets. Obviously we can put... Um, and I bought a batch of, um, like, basically disposable masks that you can put over the, you know, over the to, to prevent contact with the face. Um, so there's those, but obviously people are breathing into these things all the time. So then you've got to look very carefully about how you clean them afterwards. And, you know, it's looking likely that we'll probably need to leave 78 hours or so before we use it on more than one person. So for us, it's looking quite prohibitive at the moment, I've got to say, because we'd have to buy quite a lot of headsets in order to you know, get the experiment done in a reasonable amount of time. So we're not... Sh- I mean, the, the, the stuff that we do that doesn't involve headsets, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with that, but the headset is, is a particular issue for us. Uh, and we're going to have to look at... We may have to invest in these kind of ultraviolet cleaning machines that you can get for the devices... Yes. Yes, clean box. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of looking at th- those sorts of things. It's kind of quite interesting looking at the, again, some of the commercial people who have kind of VR arcades, basically, about what they're going to do. They're, 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 there's some good ideas there about how to, because they obviously have to, have, they have the same problem as us. They've got lots of different people using the same headset.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For us, we because we, we have a, an integrated uh, device that um, doesn't involve uh, lots of other. Um, Wires or or, yeah. or sensors or even a PC,
1: it's quite easily clear, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and we've had to, we've had to. What we've done now is that we're actually sending out basically as' uh, like research in a box. The the device is all there, and, and the, the participant runs through a protocol that's in VR and we supervise it uh, over Zoom. And uh, that that seems to be working pretty well. And and actually, one of the benefits is that it gives us an ability to actually extend our reach in terms of the kinds of participants who access uh, the research beyond the normal boundaries of, you know, university students. You know, we can now look further afield, which is, which has been, it's been a challenge. But it's actually, I think, in terms of tackling this issue around making sure that research is properly representative of, of a, of a wider population. I think that that has got some some uh, some interest and it's certainly been interesting to quite a few researchers you've got in touch since they've heard about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is a, obviously we, with, you know, when we've, at the university, we have in the past had pools of participants who are not based in the university as well. So people who are available during the day to come in for studies. Um, and it's good to get them in as a contrast, but they, they obviously tend to be mainly retired people. Yes, yes. So there's still a swathe of the population that you're missing in the middle of those two extremes, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So wrapping up, what, what innovations do you think could be created that will really push the field forward in terms of, of uh, physiological computing, understanding human behavior? And this, I mean, hardware, software, or processes, what, what could really make a big difference in how research is conducted, do you think, at this time?
1: To cover all the things that you've mentioned, the thing comes to me really is is, is is it all really boils down to sense unobtrusive sense of technology that delivers high accuracy data so you know for in some areas say for example i mentioned before uh doing this work i don't know maybe 20 odd years ago on um using an eeg in a moving vehicle um and it was really it was it was a nightmare And now, you know, you see people using EEG. I've seen EEG data from people cycling around in a major city and it's brilliant. It's really, really clean. Uh, So the technologies are to get the data of the quality that you want. Um, But is, there's always a factor that you know about. You know, sometimes it involves gels. Uh, sometimes it's basically it can be a little bit uncomfortable to wear. So now we're getting the quality of data. I think the big push now is getting data, getting sensors that are unobtrusive. Um, you know that don't that the person doesn't realize that they're wearing. And you see, if you could get that, then really the approach that you already talked about is is the way to go next. Is so that you can. Um, you know, you can go out and 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 study, you know, actual performance in the real world. So, community. I'm I'm the part of the neuroeconomics community. You know, we've got people there who are using uh, EEG and fNIRS and so on on pilot, real pilots in real planes, and like pushing that. You know, those sort of extreme environments in that sort of way. We've done some stuff in the past on driving. Uh, we did a study about three years ago or so, just looking at cardiovascular, looking at various cardiovascular measures while people were doing the commuter drive. But there was a lot of onus on the participants to you know, to get the kit on themselves and to make sure it was working and so on. So I think we need, that needs to be much easier. The setups need to be easier. The people need to have confidence that they're doing it. The experimenters need to be sure that they're gonna get data of decent quality. So I guess what I'm talking about, what will change this area really is having the flexibility to do more things in the real world uh, by, having, by having built-in sensors. Um, there'll always be a need for laboratory work. Uh, but we kind of, you know, we were always got concerns about whether we are using simulators or whatever about the generalizability of that data. So it is nice uh, at the moment we've, you know, we're very heavily biased on lab work and it'd be nice to kind of shift some of that bias over. So we've got more real world data so we can understand the relationships between our lab tasks and actually what goes on in the real world. So I'm actually, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely fantastic, fantastic. So, so
0: where can people find you uh, online, uh, social media, etc.?
1: Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Fairclough is is my Twitter name, and uh, the the main place where all my stuff is is uh, my research website, which is physiologicalcomputing one word dot org. Uh, and so, if you go there, then you will find. Um, all my papers and uh, st- all other stuff, you know, about, uh, you know, the books that we've done, all, all, the, all the PDFs are there really for the, for the papers. Uh, I think there might be some video clips on there as well of me doing various talks at different places. So, I mean, that's where, I, and I also blog there occasionally. I'm trying to do more blogging now. Uh, now we're kind of not doing the conferences so much. And, uh, and my podcast is there too. Can I mention that? Of course you can. Of course <laughs> you can. Uh, so I do a little podcast called The Mind Machine, which is really me talking to other researchers from the who work, do, do similar work to myself on neurotechnology and on uh, uh, and on human factors psychology. Um, it's a kind of, I guess it's a little bit specialised. Uh, I'm trying to make it a bit more accessible, but we just get excited and start talking shop. Uh, but yeah. Um, but uh, there's nine episodes of that up at, a mo- at the moment and there should be another couple on there soon.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan. Fantastic. Well, we'll put links to, to all of those uh, in the show notes as well as to some of the papers we've discussed as well around the uh, dynamic difficulty adjustment and the, uh, the VR pain and also Your Nature article as well. That's been really, really fascinating, Steve. Thanks so much for, for your time uh, today and uh, look forward to
1: speaking to you soon. Thanks, Shells, Nice talking to you.
0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Emotion Lab. If you're enjoying it, please remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And do head over to the description of this episode and follow us on social media to be notified when a new episode is launching.